I've toned, I've toned, and our numbers are clicking over. All right, everybody, welcome into a very special edition of the podcast. We're Matt and Bob. We're here to pod, and you're, of course, listening to the Analysis. Uh, we got a big one today, so Bob, break out the linen napkins, because we have the absolute honor of interviewing Oscar-winning film editor and author of his memoir, A Long Time Ago, on a cutting room far, far away, Paul Hirsch. Paul, hey. welcome. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know this is radio and, and not television, but I want to show you I'm wearing my special Dell Griffith Christmas shirt today. How about that? And yeah, to, to quote a movie that you didn't edit, but uh, we are not worthy. We are not worthy <laughs> to talk to you. This is so thrilling. Yeah, uh, Paul, congrats on, uh, on one hell of a career, first of all, and a endlessly fascinating book. Um, thank you. Yeah, two guys that don't really know much about inside the industry, I, I want to point to a, a thing you mentioned in the intro. I was just excited to get close to the magic. Um, yeah. It really was cool. I'm so, glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So so to get us started uh, in some of our conversation, you know, Paul, your, your book really gives some what I consider to be incredible insight into the collaborative into uh, the behind the scenes working of this industry. And, and from a perspective that not a lot of people know about, people read memoirs all the time about acting. I just read uh, multiple this year, including the Marlon Brando memoir, or, or excuse me, biography. People read directors memoirs all the time. Uh, but to Matt's point, we really don't ever learn much about editing and it's so critical in the process of filmmaking. And to, to get us started off with, with some of your perspective, you say in, in the top of your book that editing, in your opinion, is the greatest job in the industry. Can you walk us through why you believe that to be the case? Yeah, um, let me step back for a moment and say that my, my intention in writing the book was not to uh, write a how-to book, which yeah. I would find very uh, boring. I'm not interested in writing a textbook about how to edit. That said, I think that in telling the story of my experiences in the business, I think there are tips that can be gleaned from mistakes I made and situations I faced, you know. But um, I, I love editing because everything that's done on a picture is in service of the edit. I mean, the, the long hours and days and weeks and months of production where crews spend, you know, uh, a lot of time in, in terrible heat or in rain or cold or uncomfortable uh, situations, sitting in a makeup chair for two hours before they go on you know, everything is in service of creating my raw materials. So um, everything that's done passes through the editor's hands. And uh, I'm a person who likes to keep busy. And as an editor, I can set my own pace. I don't have to wait for anyone else. Um, if you've ever been on a movie set, you'll find there's a lot of time waiting while the uh, the gaffer and the electrician set the lights and and uh, maybe the uh, effects guys are rigging an explosive device in the wall where something's supposed to, you know, uh, a laser gun is supposed to hit the wall and spark an explosion, you know. So uh, I don't like waiting around. I, I like being able to set my own pace. I like being busy. I find uh, being busy equals being happy. And I also find that the autonomy that I have when I'm building the movie um, is also correlated to my happiness. So I'm busy, I'm on my own, set my own pace, got all this great stuff coming to me. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, for me, it's the best job in the movie. It's really interesting to me because I read this book earlier this year called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is actually a, a, a a line from Steve Martin, and it talks about uh, a lot about where happiness comes from in a career, and the and you know it's through a lot of surveys and a lot of uh, studies, but they say that 
really happiness after a certain dollar amount um, comes from autonomy in your workplace and impact that you believe that you have in your company and on the world. And just the impact that you've had and your films have had culturally just is, is incredible. And, and I love, and, and you're talking about this, this collaborative process and, and I love where the book starts and it starts early in career, your career and it starts with your first hit in Carrie and, and, and it talks a lot about your early work with, with De Palma. And it, it reminds me of, of, of some of just my, my very limited uh, career in acting, but where it's just people trying to put on a good show and collaborating and there's not all this huge production, but you're just trying to put on a good movie. And, and you know, that really showed to me in your book. Uh, yeah, well, that was, you know, you're making a virtue of necessity. We didn't have any money, so you know, <laughs> we had to work with what we had. It's, it's been uh, an interesting journey. I love what you said about how film editing doesn't really have a precursor in other arts, like acting, directing, um, where kind of came out of the theater and film editing is exclusive to, to film, which is pretty cool. I mean, you kind of, you get to carry that badge, you know? Yeah, it was born with the medium. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, um, I worked with Baz Luhrmann toward the end of my career. Um, I worked with him helping out on The Great Gatsby. And Baz said to me, he says, most we can hope for um, in our work is to work on something that becomes part of the culture. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough to have that happen to me. Man, Many and, times over. Yeah, in spades. So, so first, your first big, you worked on some, some some movies, you did some trailer editing, and you're, you're collaborating a lot with Brian De Palma and, and a really cool person to, to have be kind of your gateway into this uh, career. And, you know, he's even, I love those home movies that are the home stories that you weave into where Brian's shooting your wedding with your wife. And it's just like, what? Brian De Palma shoot my wedding, cool. Uh, <laughs> but then he takes a lens cap on the whole dang time and he's all yeah. dark video. <laughs> That was hilarious. Film. The unseen film. He assured me it was <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm sure it was. it was great. But so then, so then you get Carrie, and and a really cool thing about you and your career is you've you've just had these these landmark pictures, and you've got Carrie, which is just iconic horror, and then you've got the most iconic sci-fi movie in in Star Wars, and then you've got Mission Impossible, which is this to me at least, in, in, in my perspective, this iconic action movie. And, but then you've got, I'm wearing a John Hughes shirt right now and, and me and Matt are, you know, a lot of people probably go, we're, edit we're interviewing the editor of Star Wars and me and Hayes are walking around our friends going, we're interviewing the editor of Planes, Trains and Automobiles. But you know, <laughs> you, you've got all these different genres that you're editing and it seems like it would be really challenging to edit all those different tones and themes what was your approach and experience to that well i just followed my instinct in each of the uh, situations i was in you know you're working on a, a comedy you try to make the scenes that are coming to you as funny as possible and uh, uh an action film you try to make it as exciting as possible uh a horror film you try to make it as scary as possible and so um you just, uh, I never went to film school, so I didn't know any rules. I, I, I had to sort of figure out what editing was on my own, which was made it really uh, satisfying because I felt as if I were inventing film editing. Mm, but yeah. um, I had a uh, conversation, uh, rather, you know, exchanged emails with Walter Murch recently. We were talking about whether film editing is an invention or a discovery. And it's an interesting question because um, hmm. it's hard to say. I mean, it's like, is math a discovery or an invention? Are we finding out something that exists outside of ourselves or are we discovering something? Are we inventing, making something? It's, it's, a, you know, it's a fine line. But anyway, I learned how to edit on my own, sort of just copying what I saw in the movies and I would get dailies and I'd think, I mean, when I was really starting out, I knew nothing. I, I had really no experience at all. And I didn't know where to cut. I thought, well, how do I, how do I tell where to cut? Because when <laughs> I started out cutting trailers, everything was pre-cut. So I could take these cut scenes and I could make them go faster. 
and I can take little bits from here and there and juxtapose them and make interesting, you know, uh, juxtapositions. Uh, but to start with just uninterrupted reality, figuring out where to cut, that was a big mystery to me. But eventually, I, I kind of figured it out. And uh, as I say, as I figured it out, I felt like I was inventing the medium, the, the art of, of editing. But of course, I wasn't. I was traveling in the same footsteps as a lot of people who had gone before me. Um, but it was very, it's very satisfying. Is the variety in your career kind of unique to you, Paul? Because I know you talked about like in Fury, for example, the horror editing, you kind of, uh, were, that wasn't really your bag for, per se. Or that. And with De Palma, you kind of were, had to do quite a lot of horror editing. And because of Carrie, you know, Spielberg came calling and, you know, all these little valleys and this, these misconnections. But then in the book, you say repeatedly that you've lived a charmed life and you prefer yeah. to have slept around, uh, quote unquote, which I love that. Um, is, is, so is that unique for an editor to, to kind of be able to do all these different ones? Or is it more common to, to, to you know, I'm Scorsese's editor, I'm Spielberg's editor? You know, some people found that kind of relationship and stayed with it. And I can understand that it's very comfortable. And uh, if the director you're working with uh, is, you know, an A-list director, you sort of got it made. I could have done that with Brian if I had stuck with him, but I really wanted to, I mean, Brian has a very specific sensibility and uh, I think he's unparalleled in terms of visual storytelling. Uh, he, he does things with the camera and, and the, design of how his films are meant to go together is, you know, uh, unique and, um, as I say, unparalleled. But there was a, um, I had a desire to work with other sensibilities and Star Wars opened that door for me and I stepped through it. And um, I was at a point in my life where I was starting a family and uh, needed to be in one place so that my kids could go to school and not always be the new kid in, in the class. And we decided that California, Los Angeles, uh, would be the best place to, to have that kind of life. And it turned out to be true. But when I got out here, I was exposed to other sensibilities. You know, I worked with Herb Ross. Yeah, he's cool. I worked with John Hughes. I worked with, you know, um, people that I met from being out here, Frank Pearson. And um, yeah, I, I don't know how many people work in many different genres. I think probably many, you know, I just don't know. I mean, I suppose there are others uh, who work in many genres. Uh, Billy Weber has worked in all sorts of films. He does art films with, uh, he works with oh. Terry Malick. Uh -huh. He also worked on some great comedies like uh, 48 Hours and uh, Beverly Hills Cop, and he also worked on action films like Top Gun, and he's a very, you know, he's versatile and, and extremely skilled, and he's worked a lot uh, with a lot of different directors in the same way that I have. Uh, and then, you know, like I say, there's certain directors and editors who form a team and they stay with it, and God bless them. I love the part in your book where you talk about not having a specific editing style that's your calling card, but being in service to the film. And I always love when actors are, you know, I'm here and I'm in service to the character. I'm in service to the script. I'm in service to telling this story and turning the mirror to, make, uh, to nature as accurately as possible. And can you just elaborate a little more on, on why that became your approach and how you feel that's played out? Well, it's a natural uh, consequence of the job. I mean, as I said before, if you're working on a comedy, you try to make something as funny as possible. So uh, who can I cut to that would make this moment funnier? You know, sometimes the, the laugh is in the reaction and not in, in the action that prompts the reaction, you know. Uh, but uh, I compared it to, uh, to dancing where, you know, when I was a kid, this didn't apply anymore, but, you know, we took uh, um, social dancing lessons at school and you'd have to listen to the music and identify what kind of dance it is. Is it a foxtrot? Is it a, is it a mambo? Is it, you know, 
and then you hear what they're playing as a cha-cha-cha, you know, and you get up and that's what you dance. You have to listen to the music and understand it and interpret it. And that's uh, similar to you get the film and, and you look at it and say, well, how sh what am I supposed to do here? And, you know, you get an idea about um, how to react to the film. So I would say that I don't have a, a particular style, but I have a consistent reaction to things. So there may be uh, choices that I make in one film that I, I make similar choices in another film, uh, but that's it's not out of anything but following my own instinct. My, own, my instinct is consistent. Um, the situations may change. Interesting. But, you, so it seems like you're driven a lot in, in your talking about you know, music and, and, and you're talking about equating it to dancing. And, and obviously that's why you're a professional and, and I am who I am because I just do the Macarena for whatever's playing. But I think uh, um, I, it seems you, you talk so passionately about music and you've got this whole chapter on Benny Herman and who was the, the composer of Psycho. And, and really that's kind of the first time you're starstruck in a, in a in a career where you get starstruck pretty often, you know, but you you bring in this some of this Hitchcock music to some of these early movies you're making, and yeah. you're like, screw it, let's give him a call and see if he wants to come work on this stuff. And he's this huge character in your book, and, and seemed to be yeah. really influential in your life. And then several times, I didn't know this about the process of creating a movie, but before you guys hire a composer and get a score, the editor is kind of bringing in some some under tracks to get a get a sense of theme and rhythm and yeah. it seems like you have a really great understanding of that even from a very early stage well i i think i'm good at it uh but a lot of people think they're good at it but uh <laughs> yeah when you're making when you're cutting a film you're trying to find the the uh you're trying to work your way through the final cut and that's what you want to present to the composer to uh, score to because you're talking about time and um, you want the composer to have the most accurate timings possible so that when he writes 18 measures, it fits the scene just the way it's supposed to. Uh, so the composer comes in quite late uh, usually. And uh, in the meantime, while you're trying to figure out uh, what the final cut of the film should be, you often presented to audiences and you can't show it to an audience without some kind of soundtrack. So you're, you're, in, you're obligated to supply some music. And of course, you know, you use your best judgment as to what you think the music should be in a particular sequence. So yeah, the, the sound design was so fascinating. I didn't really know anything about temp tracks and, and how important they were. I always wondered how you cut a scene before you get the score. Um, because like you know Tarantino is quoted as saying like he doesn't really know how to cut a scene until he's figured out what music to use whereas you know Rodriguez on uh, on Grindhouse would say oh I'd edit it first and then I'd score the music myself to it so to to find out about temp tracks and how you use that almost as like a, you know a sound engineer on top of being a film editor what was really insightful I, I didn't know anything about that yeah well music is distinct from sound i mean that's a whole other uh issue but you know Tarantino Rodriguez everyone finds their own way of of uh working i uh when i first started i used to believe that music should be held out as long as possible so that you could watch the film without any music and just experience the rhythms of the action and the story uh, unsupported by music and then when you decided to bring music in it would only enhance the choices you'd already made but what I discovered was that I did that. And first of all, it's very difficult to get a director to sit and watch a cut of this movie without any music. I mean, it's like, it's like trying to, it's like asking them to pull out their fingernails, you know? So, um, and the other thing is that uh, on one of these occasions where I had watched the film and uh, determined that it was paced right without music, when I added music, I found myself thinking, um, wait, uh, gee, that seemed kind of short. I think, I think I could have played that moment a little longer. I didn't realize without the music, you know, with the music there now, it seems like 
I could hold that moment longer than I did, you know. So then I changed my approach so that if I knew that it was a scene that was eventually going to have music, and you can identify those, uh, I would then find, try to find a piece of music to play it against, if not to cut to, I wouldn't necessarily cut to it, but when I'd cut the scene, I would then put up some music and see how I reacted to it with music and uh, make adjustments again based on that. But, uh, you know, everything is, is, all these movies are handmade. There's no, there's no machine made movies, you know, it's yeah. like they're all handmade, they're all hand stitched and every choice is, is somebody's instinct uh, initially. Um, and then of course it goes through the collaborative process and comes out as the finished product. And that's where I want to, I want to, because there was multiple times in this book where I would slam it down and go, Paul needs his credit. So <laughs> I want to do some of this right now. And, and you've got this great line in your book that I'm going to paraphrase and ruin, but you, you talk about the concept of where ideas come from or finding ideas. And, and there's so many of these moments in these movies that I adore that are directly you consulting or challenging the director or maybe giving a, a positive suggestion to. And you talk about that directors can, can die by, what's the term? They, they die by agreement. Um, and that it's important for you as the editor to come with ideas. You die from encouragement. Encouragement. Die from encouragement. That's what it is. So let's start with Star Wars. And, and Star Wars, you have so many suggestions here, whether it's the color of Luke Skywalker's lightsaber to Darth Vader's, or whether it's Darth Vader's TIE fighter wings being a, a different shape. But so many of that stuff, so much of that stuff is you. Uh, could you walk us through some of the choices that you helped George Lucas make in the production of that movie? Yeah, well, your, your choice of words is apt. I mean, editors are in the suggestion business and the director is the one who makes the choices. So uh, it's our job to come up with, with suggestions. And every time I make a cut, that is in itself a suggestion. Let's cut here. Let's use this take. Let's cut out of it here. Let's go to the next take here. That's a suggestion. Let's pick it up and play it through to here. Let's cut to this reaction here. Everything I do is by way of a suggestion and uh, the reason for that is that film being as collaborative as it is, it involves the talents of very many different, uh, extremely talented artists, cinematographers, costume designers, actors, composers, yes, film editors, and so forth. And uh, someone has to filter all those different sensibilities uh, through a single sensibility, and that's the director. So he is in order to make, you know, in order to make the millipede walk, he has to be in charge of deciding which leg moves for next, you know? So uh, somebody has to make these choices and the director who may not be the most talented person on the picture, but may be a brilliant costumer or makeup person who, you know, who's extraordinary, or Bernard Herrmann, you know, Mm -hmm. The composer might be the most talented person on the picture, but it's the director who makes the choices. And that's because the hierarchy of film requires that. So, you know, as an editor, you make suggestions and sometimes your ideas are accepted and uh, sometimes they're not. But if, you know, if an idea gets shot down, uh, you come back with another, idea. oh, well, you don't like that one. How about this idea? Or how about this idea? Or how about this idea? And uh, I think that's uh, the value of, an editor to, uh, to a director is, is to give them things to chew over. Yeah. So, so Lucas is like, what color do we do the lightsabers? And you said blue is suggest something and red it was like some sort yeah, of... I majored, I majored in art history at Columbia when I was there and I learned that in the uh, Renaissance, the traditional, traditional Christian iconography, uh, blue and red had, had symbolic meanings uh, blue was symbolic of the celestial, the heavenly, and red was the earthly. And uh, so I said, well, if you, you know, if you're going to give red and blue to Luke and Vader, he was going to give red to Luke and blue to Vader. I said, yeah, I think, you know, from a 
traditional Christian iconographical sense, it'd be better to give blue the celestial color to Luke, the hero. It's always interesting to kind of learn where these iconic moments in film kind of come from. I mean, you know, Christian iconography or, mm. you know, like the AT-ATs coming from like the Oakland uh, shipping yard. Uh, the, the most fun for me about the book was like learning all these kind of inside baseball little tidbits. And, and so funny, like uh, the job of the hut came about because the Irish day player was so bad that he had to be replaced by some computer generated alien. Yeah, that's just the sort of stuff that, you know. Oh, you, really... you gotta send us the video of the Irish day player. That is <laughs> something I need to see. I think it's out there. Oh, it is? I gotta find him. Oh yeah. He's in a big furry coat. I think I've seen the footage, but I thought he was just a stand-in. The fact that he had to be replaced. I, oh, man. Oh, that's so good. Uh, but yeah, and then like, it's just to stick with Star Wars for a minute. I know you get asked about it a lot, but yeah, like the scene with the Obi-Wan where you're like, well, actually, why do they learn this information and then just kind of sit around gabbing yeah. for a while? Let's put this at the end. Like yeah, learning stuff like that is so cool. The scene started out with them playing the message from Leia explaining that you know, the universe is on fire, please help. And then they sit around for three minutes talking about the <laughs> So, uh, what have you been up to? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, hey, should we go do that thing? Father's <laughs> lightsaber and, you know. So, but, you know, if they hear this message, they really should sort of jump to it, you know. And uh, George agreed. So yeah. we, we took the playback of the message and put it at the end of the scene instead of at the beginning. So if at, you like that, that early like, part in Star Wars, did you have to worry about, like, canon you know like i mean these these franchise films are so huge and every frame of every film is so like you know it's like a a little trivia uh, there was maze there was no canon this was the canon we were creating the canon yeah iconic there was nothing to compare to it and then the thing that really knocked me over was that the studio was fighting George to get rid of the final battle scene, the epic, that's not a moon, that's yeah. a space station. Yeah. And it's because we've already saved the princess, who cares? Yeah. Right. And George Lucas has this great bit where he's like, you want your best scene to be the last scene. And yes. that's my best, that's my showstopper. Yes. So uh, can you walk us through some of that conversation? Yeah, you, sort of, you sort of said it all. I mean, um, they were, they, Nobody, you know, hardly any, I shouldn't say nobody, hardly anyone at the studio had faith in the project. Alan Ladd Jr. was uh, whom we called Laddie. Laddie was the only one who really believed in it. And um, uh, George was, you know, had gone over budget slightly and they penalized him. They, they cut 10% from his salary, I believe. and. Um, and then they were concerned about spending too much money. And um, there was no visual effects company uh, around that could handle the work that had to be done. So George created ILM from scratch. And that startup money was like, uh, he spent a million dollars before they turned out a single frame of film. So the studio was getting nervous and they wanted to cut, you know, cut their losses and, and spend as little on the project on the project as possible. So they, I said, well, let's cut, cut the, the end battle. You don't need it, you know? They rescued the princess. Oh That's Amazing. <laughs> so, I can't uh, even imagine that movie without that scene. Uh, so George, you know, quite uh, wisely uh, hit the accelerator on the end battle and wanted to get that into the works as quickly as possible so that, you know, they wouldn't be able to stop uh, they wouldn't be able to cut it without in, in, enduring big losses, throwing out, you know, uh, dozens and scores of shots that had already been made. So Smart. Paul, I wanted to ask you real quick, um, can you put us into the perspective of what the editing team on uh, Return of the Jedi may have had to deal with coming in to try to recreate sort of a look and feel that you had created? Um, I guess my question is about sequel editing in general. Is there a an onus to kind of recreate? Is, were they in contact with you at all? Because a lot of these franchises, the director is almost, uh, I mean, disappears and it's more like almost like a showrunner kind of creating these expanded universe. Uh, it must be tough on an editor to try to get creative while also keeping the, the look and feel the same. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I can't tell you what they experienced because I wasn't there. Uh, I think they had some trouble. They they started out with one editor and they added more, and you know, so um, I don't really know what went on. I I feel sort of the same way about sequels. I, I don't really want to do sequels. I don't like to do sequels unless I've done the original film. Mm -hmm. uh, just more out of vanity than anything else. <laughs> But uh, a sequel is just a, a picture that had a, uh, you know, you have to make the, what matters is making what's in front of you work, whether it's a sequel or an original film, uh, the, the issues are the same. I did work on a picture that had been based on a video game called Warcraft. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of chiefs in the room uh, yeah. who were, you know, we had to observe the desires of the producers and of the studio and also of the uh, makers of the original um, intellectual property, the video game people. So I was not a video game player. I am not a video game player and I didn't know Warcraft and I felt that, you know, it was important to have someone on the picture who didn't know the game so that I could represent the audience that Most didn't know the game. You can't you know, if you're going to release a movie that costs you know, $200 million, you can't say, oh, only people who play the game can come see this movie, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, right. You want to try to get everybody in. So I felt my job was to represent the portion of the audience that didn't know anything about the game. So I wasn't, you know, I would, I would be told, well, you can't do what you're suggesting because that would be a violation of the canon, as Matt suggests. Uh -huh. But um, I haven't really faced that a lot in my life. It's interesting that you're you're talking about Warcraft and you bring it up a couple times with the Adventures of Pluto Nash or uh, I Love Trouble and, and some of these movies that it seems at least in the book that you have a pretty good feeling early on that you guys might be in a little bit of trouble in terms of how this movie is going to go or be received. And do you have the same feeling when you're working on something that is going to be iconic like Ferris Bueller's Day Off or obviously Star Wars. When you're working on Star Wars, are you like, I'm on to something special here? Can you feel that in the process? Uh, no. No. Wow. I mean, you go into every picture uh, feeling optimistic and you know, you, you don't, I don't think it's, I mean, early on I took on some projects that I didn't believe in and I learned that it was, it was a mistake to do that. You have to believe in the project to a certain degree because if you don't, it'll come out in your work and it's not right to have, uh, to force a director to work with somebody who doesn't like the material, you know? So uh, just for my own sake, I don't like to work on stuff that I'm not gonna enjoy and I'm not gonna be giving the director the kind of the support and, and uh, ideas that he's, he would get from somebody who was fully on board, you know, so. Absolutely. I think as an audience member, I want to thank you for that because when we watch stuff, we want to believe that the people making the project feel like it's going to be the best movie that they could possibly make that year. And yeah. so I, I love the fact that your approach is sometimes you would get juicy offers that were obviously going to be potentially lucrative for you or, or be a gateway to some other opportunity. And, and you said, you know what, I actually don't believe in this script uh, with respect to you and best of luck on your project. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to sit this out. And I, I, I think that's commendable. Sometimes it was a mistake. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Her locker would have been cool, um, that, but that you didn't. That was obviously uh, travel, and instead of uh, you, you were really excited about that script. But yeah, what's it? What's interesting about the, the Hurt Locker uh, anecdote real quick is that like, yeah, you missed out on an Oscar winning opportunity, but you know, you mentioned that like, yeah, you dined out on Star Wars for a while. You, you got nominated for Ray, but, but, but the stink of Pluto Nash was kind of wasn't, the Oscar nomination wasn't able to kind of clear you from that. I mean, you must be vindicated from Pluto Nash because of all your suggestions that they didn't do end up dooming the picture. But is, is it more important to get Oscar noms for a career advancement or is it more important to avoid flops? Um, I don't really know. I mean, people don't, people don't walk around with it. You know, you know, you don't walk around with a resume pinned to your chest. You know? Right. So, That's a good point. Uh, it's more about how you interact with people and, and what your work is on a particular picture. I remember when I was working on The Fighting Temptations, which is a, uh, 
uh, fun movie with some great musical numbers. Beyonce is in it, and uh, uh, some fantastic uh, break dancing by Cuba Gooding Jr. And uh, some really wonderful um, musical numbers. The Six Blind Boys of Alabama are in it. Uh, mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, I was working on that picture. Sherry Lansing was the head of the head of production, head of the studio. Paramount was in the editing room, and she was talking about uh, interpreting preview cards. And she was making some kind of point. So she said, so in, in, in making her point, she turns to me and she says like, for instance, what's the most successful picture you ever worked on? And I said, Star Wars. And she stopped dead in her tracks. Because that, that was not what she wanted to hear. I, I guess that was not gonna make her point that she's about to make. No, the most successful movie of all time, ma'am. And uh, tell James Cameron, too. <laughs> yeah. I love the James Cameron showdown. You had to go and say Star Wars. I said, well, you asked me, you know, I mean. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, people don't know what you've done, you know. So and as far as Oscars are concerned, people don't remember if you won the Oscar or not. What they remember is the movie. Yeah. And uh, it used to be that if you worked on a stinker, it was okay because it would just go away. But then they got to the point where... Uh, these movies would take on long lives. So even if it was a stinker, it would be hanging around. They try to sell it as a videotape or then a DVD or a Blu-ray and uh, sell it to uh, cable, you know. So if you worked on a bad movie, it could come back and haunt you for years and years. It's like, let it die, please. Yeah. Just let it go. <laughs> so, yeah, so you're talking about the the movie you made with Beyonce and, and you've always had this, uh, affection for musicals so then you get to work on Footloose yes and earlier. yeah that was early, wait significantly earlier but uh you're you're you got to edit that the foot scene and that was something that you guys kind of added in very late in the process but uh, another uh would seem to be something that you at least uh, had a, a big part in suggesting but that's that's one of the most iconic parts of that movie as well I mean the main title the main title sequence <laughs> with the dancing. The feet, the feet are loose. Yes. But no, that was not my suggestion, but I did cut it, but it was not my suggestion. Oh, okay. During post, he said, uh, there's a feeling that, that people think there should be a musical number to start the movie. What do you think? I said, yeah, I think so, sure. <laughs> said, yeah, we idea. We're going to try it out. I said, it sounds great. You know, so. I, well, I think most people are under the impression that like, you know, the script is what kind of is filmed and the what's filmed is kind of what we see and it's all planned out. But when you talk about planes, trains and automobiles, I was so um, I don't know, excited and intrigued to learn that like the end, the ending was discovered yeah. in the editing room um and and cut together from some you know steve martin just like oh the camera's on me i should do something with my eyes and you were able to use that to like completely change the the intention of of the, yeah. the script which i found fascinating yeah we were able to use that close-up of him that he'd been given no direction it was just a close-up and he imagined well i'm at the end of the trip and i guess i'm sitting here and i'm sort of remembering things that happened and you know and he sort of improvised you know somebody reminiscing or uh, well, that was crazy or you know, and then he'd, he'd get concerned or he'd laugh or chuckle to himself or you know i mean he i don't know what he was thinking there was no <laughs> you know and then four months later it turns out to be the the key piece of film that saves the movie you know because the 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 ending of the film john can originally john candy shows up to excuse me, Del Griffith shows up to Neil's house and has this yeah. monologue. Or okay, sorry. They what? meet in the train station. Mm-hmm. They they part and they get to Chicago. They part at a, an elevated train station in the loop. And Steve gets on the train and he goes off, and Del drags his trunk out of frame. And in the original script. Steve got off the train and walks into this small suburban station and he trips over the trunk as he had been all through the movie, tripping over the trunk. And um, he looks up and Dell is sitting there and he says, Dell, what are you doing here? He says, well, uh, I got a lift from one of the truckers and, you know, and he says, no, what are you doing here? What, you know, and he, and he says, uh, he says, why don't you go home? He says, I don't have a home. And then there's this long, uh, monologue by 
Dell, where he tells the story of how Marie has been dead for eight years. And ever since then, he goes on the road and the holidays are a particularly hard time for him. And uh, occasionally he latches on to people and, and, you know, and the audience is falling asleep. <laughs> and, you know, and, but it, it even got very kind of maudlin and they started to laugh, you know, and they thought, oh, this oh. is not good. This is not good. So um, we worked that out so that, you know, first of all, we had, we, so we were, with that shot of Steve on the train, we were able to construct this, this notion that he was thinking back to hints that he had gotten from things that Dell had said that, that Dell was a homeless person. And he sort of puts it together himself. And then we had him go back and fetch Dell from the train station. Now we've never seen the train station before. So the station that was intended to be out in the suburbs, we played as if it were the station in downtown Chicago. And we reversed the, we had one shot of the train pulling out of the station. So we took it and we reversed it. So it pulls into the station. And then we had a shot of Steve getting off the train in a hurry to get home. And we flipped that, we did a mirror, you know, a mirror image. So instead of going left to right, he's going right to left. If you look closely, his part is now on the other side of his. Oh, <laughs> that's so cool. And, and we, so we put it, we, the story we created with these, you know, sort of Jerry rigged this thing was that he figured it out. He went back to fetch him and Dell had greater dignity because he didn't throw himself in front of Steve and beg for pity. Uh, and uh, Steve had, was better for his character too, because he had some empathy and figured out was, you know, and then, so that's how. It went. Yeah, he takes action and it, yeah. it's such a stronger choice. And it, it's one of my favorite payoffs in any movie. And it's, it's so cool that you got to work with John Hughes. I'm, I'm recording right now from Chicago, so. Also, we can't leave without talking about Ferris Bueller and, and your work on that. And you got to, to spend time in Chicago. And, and I, I love your stories of John Hughes on the couch cracking jokes and yep. his fugue states where he writes planes, trains, and automobiles <laughs> in, in, in night. One, one night, you know. But uh, can, you, can you talk to us about some of your favorite moments working on Ferris Bueller? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I... It's like asking, what's your favorite Beatles song? Uh, <laughs> you can answer that too, if you'd like. <laughs> you first. Yeah, really. Uh, While here, here my guitar gently weeps. Of all of them, that's your favorite? <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I do like the Harrison stuff. I don't know, that's just me. How about something in the way she moves? Ooh, there you oh, go. Here go. Uh, favorite moments, I don't know. I, you know, there were so many. Working with John was that we, we were working in this little building on the Paramount lot that had once been a vault for nitrate film, which is highly combustible and explosive. And there were these low ceilings and sprinkler pipes everywhere, uh, ready to you know turn on in a second in case something caught fire. It was no longer, there was nothing nitrate in the building anymore, but it was left over from the, the, the silent era. And, uh, uh, had this old beat up couch and this cutting room was sort of like a big cutting room, much bigger than cutting rooms were in those, uh, are usually. Um, it had the feel of being in somebody's basement, uh, going over to a friend's house, you know, and going down to the basement rec room and hanging out. And John had an assistant who would come in and he would uh, lay out cigarettes and candy and he had all these things that uh, he needed. Choose. You know, he would play out all these things to keep him amused while I was, he'd watch me work. Uh, it was a great time. Um, I remember when I met with him, I said, you know, the title, you're going to change the title, right? <laughs> it was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, Ferris Bueller. Apparently Ferris and Bueller are street names in, uh, uh, is it Winnetka? Where, where is he? Yeah, where Winnetka. He? Yeah. Winnetka. Yeah, it's great. Ferris Street and it's a Bueller Street. And he, he put them together and made Ferris Bueller. I love. I will never be able to watch the parade scene without thinking of you and the way. Again, we're we're going back to music, but the way you've got that that um, 
Beatles song, you know, and, the, uh, and you're able to work with that song and build to that crescendo through your editing and the, the, the spontaneity that happened with the crowd that day. Well, yeah. Walk me through that. Yeah. Well, you know, you build, you build expectations through repetition and then you subvert the expectation by substituting something that's unexpected at the end. So, uh, so they're going the, the ah, ah, ah section of the song. Uh, you pick up, I was picking up the pace to make it go faster and faster and it gets to the end and it cut to this little boy who was sitting on his father's shoulders with his hands clapped over his ears. And he really did that. I mean, he was not told to do that. It was just <laughs> so loud that day that he just, you know, and uh, that was the capper on that little piece of business. And then cut to the wide shot. They did three takes um, in the street of the wide shot and had many cameras rolling at the same time. And um, the third take, they had, the assistant directors had really worked the crowd up into a real state of excitement. And they, were, they, were, they had distributed a lot of balloons and they were told that you know, on a signal, you're gonna let go of the balloons, you know? So I guess everyone felt like this was a really special take and they, they really- uh, Chicago gave it to you guys. And uh, what, what a great scene. And then just the ending credits, that's, it, that's always a fun thing. And, and, and uh, you guys worked on those ending credits and, and Rooney getting on the bus and, yeah, and all that stuff. It was just such a great scene that it was just such a shame we had to cut it because where it came it just stopped the movie dead you know and uh this is when uh ferris is rushing home to try to beat genie and mm -hmm. uh i don't know I, I could be wrong about that but the original continuity where it fell originally just stopped the picture dead and it needed to be moving forward at that point and we'd taken the scene out and then one morning i was taking it was in the shower and i said i guess my best ideas in the shower i think it's the the, the water hitting my head or something, you know. I thought, Wait a second, we could take that scene. We could, we could run it at the end of the movie, you know. So. Yeah, so fun. And then you know, obviously, Sh Ferris shower eurekas. Yeah. Shower eurekas. Yeah. Well, that's a, a great example of. I mean, what an iconic soundtrack. I mean, is does that come out of like your temp tracks? Where you're like, actually, we need it. We need this song right here, and we don't need a score. Like, how? What's that decision making? That's that was John. Okay. John was really into uh, contemporary uh, uh, pop music and he, he really knew it, you know, way better than I did. John was steeped in, in adolescent uh, cultures, teenage culture at that time. Mm -hmm. That's why he was able to write 16 Candles and um, A Breakfast Club. And he had a real insight into uh, teenagers uh, in that moment. You know, some of the songs he chose for Breakfast Club were iconic also. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. when, when they, they leap up in the air on the, the football field. Don't you forget <laughs> about me. We're singing a lot today, Paul. And, and so then you, you're, you're out of Bueller. Uh, just some other highlights that I want to touch on. You, you did Steel Magnolias. Yes. Um, and there, there were some sync editing issues with some of the, the bits at top, but I just watched it last night and just such a, a, a clean and, and really touching movie. And it still gets me in the feels. And I have to agree with you. I think the freeze frame on, on the swing at the end of the movie was the way to go. But I understand the director uh, needing to add the extra 10 minutes in. Yeah, one of the most fun parts about this book, Paul, I think, um, and Bob can agree with me, where you structure it in a way where it's like, oh man, I haven't seen this movie or I haven't seen this in a while, and now I can watch it armed with like some new insights, and that's kind of the most fun about kind of going through this this memoir. That never occurred to me for a minute, but I've been hearing it again and again. People say, I'm reading the book, and I'm and I'm looking at the scene. You know, I'm watching the scene. I'm reading the book and watching the scene. And you know, it takes yeah. me forever to finish it because I have to keep putting the book down to watch the scene. It, me too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a great companion piece with the films. I mean, you know, something like uh, Source Code, I was completely unaware of. I mean, very similar to Live, Die, Repeat. So I think we got to give you credit for kind of that that genre a little bit. That was super fun. I never seen Another Chicago movie. Yeah, I had never seen a Blowout, which I know you were kind of. Uh, uh, that's kind of started your whole philosophy of I'm only going to work on uh, 
on material I agree with. Um, I thought that was kind of a fun movie too, because it all, it visualizes what you've been talking about, the cutting, the reel to reel. It was a nice kind of visual aid. Yeah. Yeah. We inadvertently made a record of a, 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 a technology that's not obsolete now, you know? So yeah. So the film historians, the students can look at it and, and see how we used to work. Talking about that technology, I was actually really surprised and impressed that you kind of took to Lightworks and Avid so quickly. I mean, it, it must have just been that intuitive, um, yeah, with the I new mean, softwares. Editing is a, is a mental process, so it's, it's not about the tools, really, you know. I had a, uh, uh, an assistant who was familiar with the, with the system sit next to me, and when you're putting a picture together for the first time, you're not making a lot of different moves. You're picking an endpoint, you're picking an endpoint, and you're adding it to a timeline. And then sometimes you're inserting it into a timeline and sometimes you're moving things around in the timeline. And that's about five or six different commands, you know? So uh, I did that and, and after a week, you know, I would say, how do I do this? How do I do that? And he would show me. And then after about a week, I had it down, you know? So wow. some, of the more, some of the more, you know, uh, sophisticated things I didn't learn till later, you know, but the basic uh, tools you need to put a picture up on its feet, uh, I could pick, you know, I figured that out very quickly. Yeah, very cool. I, I want to touch on uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book real quick, Paul, is that you say that like um, action editing today is um, the scenes are almost cut like they're trailers for the scenes themselves. Yeah. Uh, I think this is in the ghost protocol section um an action cutting i mean an example for me that sticks out is a uh, quantum of solace the sequel to the bond film casino royale and the opening scene is cut so fast that it, it does feel like a trailer for most of the film and then i always attributed that to make uh oh, that i didn't like quantum of solace because the directing didn't didn't feel right but maybe it's more so the editing although he's kind of an extension of the director um i just thought that was really a great insight and like uh modern action is you can't really if it's bad it's kind of obvious what i liked about movies when i was a kid and went to them you know uh and when i when i was very young i lived in france and going to american movies was a way of uh keeping in touch with with my home country um france did not have television when i was living there so i'd go to these movies and what i liked about them was that they would transport me to a time or a place. And they observed certain uh, rules about time and space. So that to really fully engage with the action on the screen, you have sort of have to, it has to make sense somehow. But they, they developed a style of action editing that violates time and space to the point that you're just seeing movement yeah, and you're not understanding the relationship between the subjects on the screen and what they're doing. And you know, it just becomes uh, sort of abstract uh, motion without emotion. And you lose that sense of having traveled to some place or time, you know, so. I want to ask you, you've, you've edited so many and, and really editing can help make a performance like you talk about in, in, in the way that's cut. You can, you can add a line in here and, and, and move things around and help, help the actor with, with pacing and all sorts of things. Did you have any, I know you gave Lupita Nyong'o a, a shout out in your book as someone that you enjoyed editing. Do you have some favorite people that you'd like to edit? I never edited her, but I was struck by her because she's one of the few actors who ever thanked the editor. Oh, okay. Oh, in her acceptance speech. Okay. She thanked her editors. That's what that was. Okay. Did you have some favorite actors that you like to edit or really understood what to give the editor to, to help make a performance? Uh, gee, I, I, well, I worked on one picture with Pacino and I thought he was extraordinary. He would do 10 takes and every one of them would be different and every one of them would be top notch. Wow. You know, so, but he was incapable of doing the same thing twice because he has this artistic impulse inside him that requires him to invent something new every time. He, he never falls into a repetitive groove. I did one picture with Randy Quaid 
he played a sheriff and I had 10 takes of Randy and I would, I had them strung out one after the other and I ran them and it looked like I was playing the same take over and over and over again. <laughs> mm. Like yeah. I have, yeah. He never varied his reading, but you know, Pacino was just the opposite where he was constantly inventing and, and, uh, and if he made a mistake, he would, it's like a jazz musician. If he hit a wrong note, he would make it into a pattern and turn it into something, you know, so if something happened in, in, in Pacino's reading that, you know, he slipped up or something, he would find a, he would work with it and, and find a way to turn it into something real, you know, and, and of course, when you have that much good material, it makes the job a lot harder. If you have 10 takes of Randy Quaid saying that, you know, it doesn't matter which take you pull, it's all going to be the same. So you don't have to think very hard. Pacino, Al Pacino, Randy Quaid, man, they're just, <laughs> <laughs> very few separates those actors, but yeah, different takes. I like some of Randy Quaid's work. Okay. <laughs> oh, are you able to rewatch these movies? Um, I mean, talk like Planes, Trades, and Automobiles, classic Thanksgiving Day movie. Because you go through frame by frame. Do you watch any of these again? Well, when you get to the end of a movie, you know, you've seen it so many times, you feel like you'd rather, to quote, uh, Jim Brooks in terms of endearment, I'd rather put long needles into my eyes than see it one more time. You know? so, Fair. But last fall, about a year ago, actually, I was in Chicago at the Music Box with James Hughes, and we showed Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And I had never, uh, first of all, when I finished editing the film, I was just exhausted at that point. And... Um, and had, had been through, through such a ringer to get the picture out that I couldn't possibly co even consider going to the theater to watch it with an audience. Watching it with a preview audience is a whole different thing anyway, but I, I never saw it in a theater with an audience. And uh, I didn't want to, I mean, at that point, I just didn't want to, you know, so. Uh, but then at the music box, it was now 30 something years later 32 or three years later and 32 years later. And uh, <laughs> I sort of forgotten a lot of the, de you know, in my memory, some of the stuff that we'd taken out was still in the movie. And I was sort of surprised to see it wasn't, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, but I watched it and surrounded by an audience that was just eating it up and it was fantastic. It was so much fun. Yeah. Uh, to sit in that audience and people are laughing so loud that the, you can't hear the next line of dialogue. And it, it was just, <laughs> Everyone shut up. There's a great part right coming up. Hey, I'm about to make it out of here. It's going to look great. I'm with your laughing. That's great. Remember Herbert Ross used to say, if they can't hear the, the dialogue because they're laughing so hard, that's good news. That's a good point. <laughs> that's a great that's point. Good. So, and then, of course, the audience realizes it too, and they, and they start to suppress their laughter because they don't want to cover up. Mm -hmm. you know, and then sort of that that pressure builds. And then when there's a laugh at the end, it's really explosive, you know? So um, it was great fun. It was one of the best screenings of my whole life. You know? The music box is such a great place to, mm -hmm. to watch a film and especially uh, something iconic. I, I've gone to a lot of screen. I, I was not at that one, but I've been to a lot of screenings similar and it's, it's an incredible experience. And I'm sure very similar to cutting Al Pacino because he's giving you so many options. I'm sure there's a lot of brilliance from John Candy and Steve Martin that are on the editing room floor that just couldn't fit into that movie. And, and you know, it, yeah, uh, it was probably fun. Yeah, it started out very long. And uh, this, the problem with when you start out very long is you cut and you cut and you cut, you think you're done, but you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say uh, the, the first cut was like three and a half hours? Three hours, 45 minutes. Oh, Jeez. wow. Yeah. It's a lot of John Candy. We took out more than we left in. We took out two hours and 15 minutes. It's amazing. So, uh, my last question for you, Paul, is just throughout all the interviews, your, your fantastic career, was there ever an interview question that you liked the most or that you wished was asked of you? Um, from from interviewers like us jerks. Well, uh, you're not jerks. Uh, <laughs> We're just movie nerds. I, uh, you know, I named the book. I I titled the book a long time ago in the cutting room far far away because 
I was making, obviously I was making a link to my most fav famous credit, mm -hmm. Star Wars. And I, you know, I knew from a commercial standpoint that was uh, good, you know, but um, the result is when I, I've had interview requests or public appearances or whatever, I get a lot of questions about Star Wars. So I always appreciate questions that have to do with the other films because, you know, I, you, you can only, I, I only have so many stories about Star Wars, you know, so yeah. um, it was eight months out of a 50 year career. So, um, you know, I did a lot of other stuff. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I like when people ask me about other movies, uh, movies that have been kind of ignored. Um, in, you know, I don't get a lot of questions about falling down, which I think is a really good picture. Just watched that the other day. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great too. one. Schumacher and he's a, he's a great character in your book as well and and there's just so many and just great stories and you find out personality types of some of these directors or some of these industry people that you've heard about for a long time and it, there's in there's also these great stories about your family and I'm so jealous of your kids that got to grow especially your daughter that her first month or six months of the of her life she's living in george lucas's house and steven spielberg's bungalow and just <laughs> i want you to adopt me paul if, if, you're, if <laughs> yeah. you're looking for another son i'm i'm available so. take me with you yeah <laughs> she's a baby she didn't know uh, still, still uh, uh, fantastic. Well, your daughter's an interesting character in the book because uh, you bring her into the fold as an assistant and she leaves to go pursue an acting career. And then it seems like she's, uh, she's back working alongside you. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a cool uh, hero's journey. Yeah. Well, you know, acting is very tough. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You know, at a certain point, if it's not happening for you, you got to think of alternate, you know, alternatives. And exactly. I was, um, I tried to show her that you can be creative in films without being in front of the camera. And she's now got a very successful career as an editor. Knowing That's great. She did a, um, she did a pilot for an HBO series directed by Ava DuVernay. And she just did a, um, a, uh, a piece, uh, based on a Christmas carol that was got a very favorable review in the New York Times the other day. Great. Must be the genes. Yeah. Well, it, it's a, an incredible collaborative art form and I've learned so much about editing and it's just been so fun to, I feel like before we even hit record today, I, I felt like we became friends and I highly recommend this book. We've, we've already had some people asking us and where to find it. So um, any, any plate is it's on Amazon, obviously uh, um, any, anything else you'd like to, to share about where to find the book? Uh, Chicago review press is the publisher. They have a website. I think you can order it through them. And I think it's on the Barnes and Noble website as well. And there's an audible um, audio edition as well. I actually listened to the audiobook, and I, I, we asked Ben Fritz the same question. Do you, have you listened to it? Do you have any say on how, who they cast? Uh, nice, nice deep baritone there for you on the reading. Well, it was an unhappy situation. They, they sent me some audition tapes. And I said, none of these guys sounds like a New Yorker, you know. I'm an oh. you know, so they all had these sort of flat Midwestern accents, and I thought oh, this doesn't sound like me. So they sent me this guy who had a deep, gruff voice, and uh, I said, well, he's the best one yet. Uh, what about? Um, have you thought of, you know? And I suggested, I have a friend who grew up a block from me, so his accent is exactly the same as mine, you know. And I sent them an audition tape of his. And they just went with the guy. Oh man! I said was the best one yet. They said, "Well, you said he was the best one yet." I said, "Yes, yet the best <laughs> yeah. one yet." This I guy's even better. Go, go with this guy, and they wouldn't consider listening to my friend. And uh, I was very mm -hmm. unhappy because, um, I mean, the, the, I don't know. The, the, what did you think of the guy's voice? I um, I I found it. Uh, Perfectly fine, uh, yeah. honestly. Okay, good. Fine. Um, I want something more. 
I thought you were going to say Harrison Ford because he had helped you do the voiceover <laughs> yeah. for that. Give and me I got Harrison. this friend Harrison Ford. He did this voiceover <laughs> for me when I was editing the trailer for Star Wars. But uh, no. yeah, 10,000 bucks to do the, the voiceover. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it it speaks glowingly to collaboration. And, and I think the, the last thought I have is that Baz Luhrmann line where you know the the best thing you can hope for is is working on something that becomes a part of the culture and and you absolutely have and uh, thank you thank you for your service in the industry thank you for all your incredible talent and thank you for your time today yeah thanks so much paul this was a lot of fun thank you thanks fellas it was great it's great well Go one more buy time the book guys buy the book 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 so thank you and thank you everyone for listening don't forget to like and subscribe and we'll talk to you guys next time bye bye you're still here it's over go home go